This is Judaism Unbound, episode 81, Diaspora Boy. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we're excited to be here today with Ellie Valley, the writer and artist who's well-known in the Jewish world for his comics that were published for a long time in the Forward newspaper and that have also been published in a variety of other places, uh, quite a few of them because the Forward didn't want to publish them, um, which we'll talk about in our conversation today. His comics have recently been collected into a book called Diaspora Boy, Comics on Crisis in America and Israel. What I really appreciate about Ellie's website where he is advertising the book is that it includes a lot of your typical comments about how great the book is and also quite a few comments from, let's say, some of the more conservative elements in the Jewish world that refer to the book with some of these adjectives, grotesque, wretched, offensive, obnoxious, crosses the line, disgusting, stupid, and ferociously repugnant. So I appreciate both the sense of humor to actually post those comments and also the comics themselves that are so provocative that they generate such comments. His book is not available through the usual channels, so if you'd like to order it, you might uh, be best off going to our website, www.judaismunbound.com, and clicking on the link in the show notes to buy the book. You can also go to Ellie's website at Ellie Valley, that's E-L-I-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com, and you can also purchase the book via that website and see a lot of Ellie's comics not only about Jewish issues, he's been doing a lot of Trump comics lately, which we also appreciate. Ellie Valley, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm honored and appreciate it. Yeah, well, this is going to be fun. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to try to avoid making this interview that thing on I think with Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live when he's like, "Remember when you did that? That was awesome." I, I, I'd be fine with that, uh, <laughs> not just because I'm a right. maniac, but because it would be easier on me. Right. <laughs> But um, but actually, you know, a little bit of a, a question that's in the genre of that was awesome is when I read your book, I actually sort of had this feeling like I was reading a, you know, 21st century book of of uh, one of the prophets, right? You know, that it was this sort of angry, uh, but true in a, in a deep way. I don't know, letter to those who are in power puncturing the claim that this represents the 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 truth of what Judaism is, and in some way, right, also giving the word to all the people to say, don't believe what they're telling you. And I'm just cu- curious if that, how that lands on you. And and obviously, uh, uh, you know, modesty aside, but I mean, I that that was that was the feeling that I got in in reading that work altogether, it collected in a book. Who doesn't want to have that kind of uh, accolades? But you know, it's not like I set out to do it with, with that in mind, obviously. But I do think that when I was compiling the comics for the book and writing the introduction and tying them together, the strands of reclaiming Judaism and Jewish expression for the majority who have been, put it mildly, ignored was, was one of the goals. Could you just describe a little bit uh, what you do as a Jewish comics person? What, what are your comics like for those who haven't seen them? It's so annoying when Jewish writers or artists claim they're not you know, primarily Jewish writers, artists, but I just feel like under the current administration and sort of the cataclysm that happened in November, you know, I don't think of it necessarily only as like uh, Jewish comics, although I will say maybe like a third of my comics post-election have been through a Jewish lens. I mean, it's, it's a hard question to answer because sometimes my comics are based on specific events 
and sometimes they're based on a specific series of events, and sometimes there are larger issues that are based on uh, stuff in the past six months, essays, uh, panel discussions, um, even like tweets by these you know psychopaths, and um, sometimes there's stuff that's been happening the past sixty years, you know. Dan and I are both big fans of your comics, and I'm sure a lot of people listening are familiar with them too. But just for for folks who aren't as familiar, if you could sort of situate yourself, maybe maybe talk about um, when when you maybe it is a little bit about like the art that you're doing. But so when you sit down to do a comic, w- what process is happening? What goals do you have in mind, um, like broadly, and then maybe specifying it a little, what are some of the themes that are uniting the comics that you chose to piece together in Diaspora Boys? Generally speaking, my comics are inspired by a satirical trope or narrative. I I, I especially like narratives, even though a lot of my my work has been single panel post-election, largely because the news is so fluid. I don't really have time for these multi-panel ones I was doing uh, prior to the election. Um, I still prefer the multi-panel approach in theory um, because it's narrative and I love narrative and single panels are by definition, not narrative. They're a single image. Narrative means consecutive panels through time telling a story from that perspective, my comics, especially the broadsheet, you know, 12 panel ones or 14 panel ones, they're incubated over time. They're, they're not the kind of thing that I um, wake up, write the script and then draw it. They, they actually take weeks or months sometimes. I mean, I have some, some, undrawn comics in my comics folder that uh, have been sitting there and I've been adding to them uh, for years in some cases, but I'm never going to draw them because at this point they're, you know, some of them had to do literally with Obama. I mentioned one of them in the book, the uh, Yiddish Obama comic. Um, but other ones are just, I'm just not going to get to because it's such a, uh, an intense labor to draw these things that at least for me that um, I need to choose. And so currently I'm pouring a lot of the energies into uh, Trump related work. You know, it's funny reading the, I don't know what you call them exactly, the sort of little introductory uh, notes of your book where you describe the comments. You know, I was sort of surprised only in the sense that I hadn't encountered your writing before that you're an amazing writer. Why have you expressed yourself through comics and less through writing? Is it is it because of um, your, your talent, right? You also have a drawing talent, of course, but but is it, or is it that you think that there's something about the comics that is uh, able to better convey what you're trying to say or perhaps better able to be received by the readers? Op-eds versus comics is something I was struggling with uh, over 10 years ago when I was, I was writing some op-eds and I was enjoying it and people like them and I, I mean, my friends like them and I enjoyed doing it. But then um, when I started drawing these comics, I, I was on the impression, I realized since then that it was wrong, but I'm on the impression that anyone who's smart can write. Clearly, it's, it's, it's amazingly wrong. But I'm just, I, I just assume that if you have a certain degree of intelligence, you're able to express yourself in writing because you can make sentences. So it's, just, it's obvious that you can do that, and not everyone can draw. So I just figured I'm going to follow the, the less easy path because any, you, know, you see essays and op-eds all the time, and they're just like, you, know, you just get lost in them. And I'm not, not lost in the individual ones, but in like the litany of all these arguments. You know? And it's like... It just, it's exhausting, but an, an, an image is different. Obviously, I didn't choose this path based on knocking out the lesser of evils. And there was much about comics themselves that drew me to them. But then when I was deciding, because you only have limited time in life, whether to be doing writing or drawing, I just figured, hey, 
not many people can draw. Everyone can write. But again, that was wrong. One of the comics that made a, a huge impression on me, I think I'd seen it before, but reading it again, it really it struck me, was the one about, it was like The Incredible Hulk. And basically, it's the story of uh, your average American Jew who is very uh, liberal and peaceable and, and, and wants everything to be uh, progressive in the United States. But as soon as somebody says something negative about Israel, he turns into the Incredible Hulk and he goes crazy and he goes on a rampage. And then as soon as that's dealt with, he's back to mild-mannered Bruce Banner. And um, somehow it's like, well, you could say that like I just did in a sentence, but actually seeing it on the page, it it strikes you as much more powerfully, I think, much more um, visually, you know, but not only visually in the reading, but also visually in the remembering and the thinking back to it and in the, I think, noticing when that's actually happening in front of you in a way that I don't quite think would be the same if it were just written that way. No, although that, that's an easy example because the Hulk already is in our collective unconscious, is that the term? Collective unconscious? <laughs> Young? What is it? Collective consciousness. Collective consciousness. And so it's easier for me to create an indelible character relying on something that was already indelible. You know what I mean? But, but I hear you and I agree. I don't know. You know Thomas Nast, the famous uh, American cartoonist from the last century? Uh, you know, he was taking on uh, Boss Tweed in New York and Tweed was reputed to have said his people... Uh, they're illiterate. They can't read, but they see those damn images. And he was referring to the workers that he needed on his side, I think. So in that regard, uh, the sort of gutter medium of comics play to the advantage of politically trenchant work. I'd love to just hear from you. What do you see as the, like, the presenting issue or problem or set of issues that is causing you to feel the passion that you bring to those comics? It is often the case that those who are involved in Jewish institutional life extrapolate from their own uh, immediate circles into what is, you know, the larger Jewish community in terms of its makeup and in terms of its needs. And um, that is one of the reasons it's sort of self-selecting. And it's one of the reasons the doors are closed. And, and it's sort of like, it's a, um, it's a cycle because, you know, the doors are closed to people who might otherwise want to be involved, but um, because they're not involved, their voice is not there. And so they're not contributing to, they're not able to contribute or they're not listened to within those who are you know, inside the institutional framework to open the doors more. It's self-replicating, unfortunately. And those who are within, the, within that, I mean, you know better than I do the kinds of people that are actively involved, but they tend to be the skew more towards the Orthodox, less towards accepting of the idea that Palestinians are people and um, more um, disposed towards shitting on the intermarried and their children, which means basically the majority of uh, Jews in America institutional Jewish life has become, I mean, with some exceptions, obviously, and, and there are certain elements that are changing slowly, but speaking broadly, it's become uh, sort of a, uh, a small community that doesn't really reflect or speak for the majority of American Jews. What I've noticed is, so you, uh, so first off, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear you say that because you've communicated it beautifully through images in, in what you've put out there. But what I find is when people engage with your comics versus all the op-eds we talked about before that are talking about these same issues, it seems to me that the responses, it's, it's like they all have an exclamation point. They're either, nobody that I have experienced is like neutral about Ellie Valley comics about the Jewish community. And I say that lovingly, I, I say that 
as a good thing. I I I feel like part maybe it's the medium, maybe I don't know. Maybe it's the medium, maybe it's the way you are utilizing the medium. People I know are either like ardent, passionate supporters who are sharing every time one of your comics hits the airwaves or not the airwaves, that's our world. The hits the web um or they are probably also sharing them and saying how terrible they are. Um and you've and you've even quoted on your book jacket some of those people who think that the comics are terrible. And I guess it, it relates back to some of the strengths and maybe weaknesses, I don't know, some of the characteristics of the medium. But but I think it's more than just the medium. I think it's the way you are going about fashioning these comics in a particularly provocative way that gets people talking and thinking. And so I'd love to hear from you about that. Like, Because you could, you could be writing all sorts of comics that aren't getting people shouting from the rooftops, but the ones you're writing are are inducing that. I actually said this in part of the, um, I think it was in the preface to the comics in my book, uh, the birth for outlandish and horrifying statements by Jewish communal leaders is unlimited, but the birth for parody and satire of those sentiments is constricting, you know? And so mm-hmm. uh, the, the actual discourse is insane to me. Mockery of the discourse using the same uh, strident tone um, seems to me to be, um, it's like a natural fit. It's just odd that the reaction to the comics can be so furious or so outraged when I am mocking things that are actually being said. And, and there's no outrage. I mean, there's no outrage about things that are being said. You know, I mean, like, there are members of the Israeli cabinet who have said horrific things that should make them um, plutonium in America. It should make them not allowed to speak at a single Jewish organization in America. Okay? Yeah. And they are allowed, which is, which is outrageous to me. And, and, and then when I quote them in a comic, I'm getting, you know, there's pushback to me. There's outrage at me for quoting them, you know? That's not the way it should be. All I'm doing, it, I mean, really, my comics, they're only taking a, a step further. And, and I don't know if you want to go into this now. I'm happy to. But um, what we saw with this election, what we see to this day, is the same guardians of Jewish communal authenticity allying with Nazis, okay? Nothing I ever could have imagined would have been this horrific. And it's happening now. Let me sort of back up uh, and ask you, I sort of have a two, take this question in two parts, which is fundamentally, you know, you asked us, I think, before we started the recording, who's our audience? And in a way, we explained to you that we have an intended audience, and then we have an audience that is probably also listening. And I'm curious, as you see it, who is your intended audience? Who are you trying to speak to? And then I'm curious who who you have a sense of that actually reads and is affected by the comics and is it the same audience? And I guess to be more clear about that, I'm asking, you know, sometimes it sounds like you're trying to talk to those in power and show them the idiocy of what they're saying. And uh, is that what you're intending to do? And and are they, is it is it registering? I mean, yeah, I'd like it if they would see my comics, but um, the goal is actually the people that they uh, represent and the people that are giving them money and the people that are, um, whose voices are, uh, that the leaders claim to be representing. But actually, I mean, my comics are just like, I, I don't really think of readers w- when I'm drawing my comics. Cause you know, it's like once you're, you know, beyond the whole superhero or, you know, children's book or, you know, personal, uh, memoir kind of thing. I'm not, de- I'm not denigrating any of those. I'm just saying, I don't really think there is necessarily a popular appeal for these. So I'm just doing them for myself essentially, you know, and I'm glad that some people do like them, but I mean, and that's not just false modesty. I mean, Seriously, if you look at my book, I mean, I feel bad now. I didn't define Chofetz Chaim. I mean, I, I was like so busy doing these like liner notes of like these broader issues, and I'm like, holy shit! 
there's Chofetz Chaim, you know what? In, in that one in five majority comic uh, said by Mr. Weatherby, I didn't define anything there. And I'm like, you know, anyone who is not totally inside the Jewish world will be like, what is this Chofetz Chaim? You know, so I feel. What is Chofetz Chaim? Well, <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I was actually saying to myself, like, how would I have um, described it? I would have had to, like, look it up to remember the century he was writing in. But basically, he's probably most famous today, certainly outside the Orthodox world, for what he said about Lashon Hara. Gossip. Speech, <laughs> gossip, yeah. And, you know, um, how it, but how that has been distorted today within certain communities to reflect only gossip, which is negative about... Orthodox Jews, essentially, you know. <laughs> but in terms of who I'm uh, drawing for, this is um, a bit pretentious, but I'm going to say it anyway. I used to live in Prague, and I was really into the um, early 20th century uh, Jewish debates, internal debates there. So in some ways, I am actually writing, drawing these comics as sort of a continuation of that as sort of a conversation with ghosts, is what I say. And I know, of course, that's where it gets a little bit ponderous, but whatever, um, or pretentious. Because I was inspired by those early 20th century works you know, I, eventually, you know, 100 years from now, who knows what's going what's gonna to be, but I, hopefully there will still be libraries, but who knows. But I would like my works to be read, people trying to understand what the hell was going on, to paraphrase our president, um, in terms of the American Jewish community. <laughs> hopefully my works will be part of that time capsule. You've written so many comics, and you could have chosen a title and a cover of from many of them. But you chose Diaspora Boy, which I think was really a, a good and powerful choice. But I'm wondering, what is it about the ideology of diaspora that made that the the key piece that you wanted in the title and on the and on the cover of the book? In terms of Israel versus diaspora, I think we've sacrificed so much of our natural inclination. Um, and I, when I say we, I, I mean largely the, the leadership of the community because, you know, Jews themselves, you know, it's so funny. Um, People, Jews who are not very active in the community and non-Jews who don't really know much about this stuff, they, they're just like shocked by the idea of a Republican Jew. They're, they're shocked by, by conservative Jewish thought, you know? And I, I've encountered that. And so I was like, wow, because my comics to them must be total foreign language because it's like you're dealing with these, um, these fringe right-wing lunatics. They don't exist. How can a Jew be a Republican, you know? Um, but within the community, unfortunately, they don't, they not only exist, they're vocal and they're representative uh, to a large degree. I mean, certainly more than their numbers would necessitate. Could you describe to our listeners a few of the comics in the book that you think are sort of paradigmatic of, of some of the more important messages that you're trying to convey? Let's see. I think the codename Evangelator is good um, because it just, it, it just, uh, captures the contempt that Netanyahu and Netanyahu as a stand-in for that his entire ilk, you know, um, that they feel for the majority of, Ameri of, of diaspora Jews, really, um, but specifically American Jews, those who are, you know, born and bred in a pluralistic culture, etc., who might not like the idea of an ethno-national state. Um, and so, should I give a little summary of it? Yeah. It's basically Netanyahu, his scientists, of course, he had a secret laboratory to um, help Zionism, they come up with a scientific solution to turn liberal, progressive, lefty Jews into evangelicals because Netanyahu and his ilk are much more comfortable with evangelicals who have this extremist vision of Israel and of Jews in Israel than he is with uh, actual Jews in America. And one of the little you know, Easter eggs or whatever, uh, one of the extras in it was um, they, hid, they hid the... Um, 
the device that would change the Jews. They hit it into a handbook on social justice. Um, because Netanyahu um, says, a, a magnificent plan, but wait, Orthodox Jews support Israel. How do we ensure they won't be affected? And then the scientist says, <laughs> we'll place the device inside a handbook on ju social justice. And then Netanyahu says, brilliant, the Orthodox will never open it. Let's get moving. Two birds, one stone right there. Um, maybe that's the kind of thing that uh, might piss people off about my comic. But look, it's like one, it's, it's, it's a comic, it's really not good to, you know, verbalize the visual medium, but I mean, they all turn into dinosaurs because there's a, a glitch in the system. And then, so it's like, in this panel, it says, and after a disastrous week, most American Jews are changed into dinosaurs with only the Orthodox remaining. So I draw these four dinosaurs, you know, spazzing out. And on the right, there's this, there's this little Orthodox guy saying, the Palestinians have never existed as a nation or as a culture. And I had him say that, and that's the kind of thing that you hear in like these fringe subsets, maybe not even that fringe, I guess, of the Jewish community, but you know, certainly online message board type things. But you know, this comic's from 2011. Since then, that viewpoint has been magnified, not just in the Orthodox world, but you know, Newt Gingrich said it, Sheldon Adelson said it, he's not Orthodox, but I mean, that's not a, um, that's not a fringe view within, the, um, within Zionist circles, basically. It captures the divide between American Jews and Israelis, um, Israeli Jews. It's a, it's, we're almost unrecognizable to each other. But there seem to be two themes in, in a comic like that and in some of the other comics in the same genre, at least that I'm picking up on, and I'm curious how you, you think about them. One is the, the theme that those who claim to represent the Jews actually neither represent the Jews and also have disdain for the Jews, right? So, so, um, right. So, so in this comic, that Netanyahu actually is 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 more, um, uh, you know, be more comfortable with the evangelical Christians because they give him the kind of uh, support that he wants, and you know, thinks so so poorly of you know the vast majority of Jews. Um, and the other, the flip side of that in general, and I think you, I also see it in your comics, is that for some reason, and this is the question I want to really explore, for some reason, that actual majority is functionally a silent majority, right? That for some reason, the people who are actually in the majority, and most of whom don't agree with the things that these, quote, leaders are doing, somehow feel like they're the only one and that there's some other group that is more authentic that they should defer to. There are two ways to look at it. Either they really feel that those people are more authentic, which is what they're doing is they're imbibing the kind of self-hatred um, that the leaders are essentially spewing, um, like Diaspora Boy on the cover, or they are so um, disgusted by it that um, they choose to not be involved. And much more you know, frequent than that would be people who are not involved, who aren't disgusted. They don't even know about it because the community has become so toxically fringe in its leadership that um, they don't even get a chance to know about it, you know? So it's like th there are different areas on the spectrum where they can find themselves. I think most of the Jews that I mentioned who, who are like, what, a Republican Jew? Are you kidding me? Those, those people wouldn't know about the Zionist Organization of America allying with uh, neo-Nazis, essentially, you know, with Nazi allies, with Breitbart's head. I mean, just like this kind of insane horror show that is happening now, they're not aware of that because it's like, how could a Jew ever do that, you know? They're so removed from it, partly because they never would have even thought to belong to such a community because of the, those very same steps that have been happening for generations by the leadership and by those who are institutionally affiliated. That got me thinking about another character of yours, Stuart, 
our friend, the Jewish turtle. America's sweetheart. Yes, America's sweetheart. Um, but so Stuart, the Jewish turtle, and I'll let you frame him in a more accurate way than I can. But he speaks to me so hardcore, um, both on levels of sort of intergenerational or transgenerational difference in the Jewish community. Because as far as I read him, Stuart seems to represent like an older curmudgeonly kind of person. Um, I get because turtles live a long time. I, I, <laughs> I read re- yeah, re- that. Yeah, that's like the cage also. Oh. I like the cage thing. Right. Um, but I think that who he is and and your creation of him plays into a lot of these conversations. So I'd love to hear sort of what led to the creation of Stuart Turtle, um, what leads you to sort of break him out here and there at key moments in the world or in Jewish life. What's the deal with with Stuart and what can we learn from him? It's funny because some of these comics to me, they seem so so self-evident that I didn't write liner notes to them. Although with Stuart, I did in the introduction um, note how he has become sort of a um, point of, you know, revealing one's affiliation or identity or um, between the generations. But if I would actually have to try and figure out the origin of him, it, it's actually difficult because I think at the time, I really just wanted to just like go in a sort of absurdist direction. And it really is absurd in so many ways. It's really hard to articulate. That's like one of the examples of a comic that can't be verbalized. It was just sort of like, in, in this case, definitely the script, you know, went through a lot of revisions, but the, the whole idea of, of a turtle in its own world was just so absurd that it was hilarious on its face. But then, you know, developing that character as, you know, just totally blinded by Israel and by uh, Jewish parochialism. And his, his owners are just so sweet and so normal and just like normal people. And he, he even suspects them of anti-Semitism. Um, just had a great palpable, it was a very palpable um, appeal. So I, I remember he popped up in the conversation when Bernie Sanders was running um, in conversations about, because um, this, I mean, this was all over the Jewish press from every angle and a half. Like, Bernie Sanders is Jewish. What do we do with Bernie's Judaism? Is he like an authentic Jew? What's the deal? He knew this Vermont rabbi, all the, like all of these things. Can, um, I, can I interrupt yeah, for a minute? Sure. I think really, and I should have maybe talked about this more, I did, I, I alluded to it in the description of that comic, but I should have maybe gotten to it more. Many of these articles, the ones in the Jewish press are one thing, but there were articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and elsewhere, and often they would contrast Bernie with Joe Lieberman. And they would say, you know, Bernie doesn't talk about his Judaism, you know, people aren't really sure, you know, like, I mean, he's Jewish for sure, like, in a Larry David sense, but, you know, how is, you know, what are his, you know, predilections, et cetera. But in contrast to Joe Liebman, who clearly, you know, he wears a yarmulke, he, you know, he, he is from, you know, clearly he, he is Jewish. And honestly, I do not feel at all connected to Joe Liebman in any sense, except maybe sometimes his cornball jokes are reminiscent of something from a relative somewhere, you know. <laughs> but in terms of his politics, etc., uh, the, man, the man has called John Hagee, this anti-Semitic evangelical pastor, Moses. He's compared him to Moses, okay? Joe Liebman is fringe. And for a newspaper, any newspaper, to cite Joe Lieberman as, as indicative of anything Jewish and, and Bernie Sanders as sort of like this, you know, ooh, what, what do we know about him? Uh, he's a confusing character. That to me is offensive, but it also summarizes the misunderstandings, not just within the Jewish community, but how it, you know, how it's uh, magnified in the, in the non-Jewish uh, world, you know? In an ideal world, Bernie Sanders as a presidential candidate would have been galvanized, galvanizing the entire Jewish community as the first potential Jewish president of America. It's such a huge history-making thing. And all these Jewish writers could be doing was say that, oh, he, you know, he said Poland. He didn't say Polish Jewish. Oh, you know, he, he, he talked about 
suffering in Gaza. Oh, you know, he's not really, he's not really devoted to Jews, is he? No, we can't trust him. That was just really offensive. And it was more offensive as you go down the generational ladder, younger people, you know. I think really, and that's what my comic is trying to say, he tapped into a Jewish sensibility, which has been not lost, but sort of like been sidelined a bit because you don't really see vocal socialist Jews on the national stage like you did 100 years ago. I mean, I mean maybe not on the national stage, but, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it, it, it's like this, this touched into a, a part of our roots, but it's a part of our roots that especially younger people um, savor and cherish. And, um, but those who consider themselves spokespeople for the community um, diminish and sideline. So can you talk, can you sort of, think more out loud about why that is. I mean, that's something that we talked about way back at the beginning of the podcast. We talked all the time about more or less what you're talking about, you know, that Bernie Sanders is like the most Jewish, you know, that we can imagine the most admirable, right, is is whether he talks about it or not in these terms, who's living the Jewish values that most American Jews believe in and believe are Jewish values, right? And at the same time, you know, maybe now, two years later, right, where we see that uh, a, a variety of Jews whose practice is such that they're never going to be called into question on th those dimensions are in alliance, like you say, with Nazis. And, and somehow that, is, that does not seem to publicly undermine the fact of their Judaism, whereas Bernie Sanders just sort of not talking about it that much was anathema. It's because uh, Bernie Sanders is secular and because even though he did spend time in a kibbutz, right? Um, he, is, he, he does not place Zionism at the forefront of his political sensibility. Those, those are the two reasons, I think. I mean, you, so you mentioned this, the secular word. Again. I, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking more in this direction, but I, I just in the intro of your, of your book, you, you talk about your own growth. Uh, it, you talk about your own background and your parents, and you, and you give this beautiful portrayal that spoke to me of you, you were – your dad was a rabbi and your mom, I mean, I forget the exact context of it, but I, if I remember correctly, there was, you, you quote like two letters to camp and one of them is your mom saying, like, what was it like? Fart, she ended with fart on the flag. Is like, that like 4th of July? Yeah. Like fart on the flag. Like, so you have, you have a mom who, um, as far as I can tell, represents once again, what felt very Jewish to me. I mean, I think of some of my own relatives that represent this like gregarious um, and, and sarcastic wit kind of thing. And you've got your dad who's a rabbi and, and all of this, you talk about influencing your thinking and your work. And I guess how, how did they influence your work and your thinking? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, um, well, my parents are divorced. So I grew up with my mom, but I'd I'd visit my dad obviously every like two or three weeks. And so, um, I would have an intense Jewishly rigorous, you know, Shomer Shabbos, kosher, et cetera. Uh, experience for a weekend, but not only that, but it'd also be the um, son of a rabbi who is, you know, who has to be dutiful, who has to be sort of a representative of propriety, of clergy propriety, you know, I mean, because me and my sister, we were, we were representatives of the synagogue in that regard, you know, and so, but then I go back to my mom's and it was like a bastion of um, secularity. So that caused sort of a, um, obviously some tensions, but also because I went to Jewish day school through eighth grade, and then I went, you know, to public high school, the Jewish day school experience definitely gave me a very strong Jewish literacy. I mean, not as strong as someone who, who grew up in the yeshiva or, or um, who, you know, grew up in orthodox environments, but it, it gave me the tools to tackle some of these issues that I might not have otherwise had, or that I would have had to work harder to, to obtain in adulthood. Casual Hebrew, for instance, 
But then obviously going to high school after that, it also gave me remembered experiences that might not have jived as well when you're sort of, you know, entering or existing in the, in the outside world. Then you start like questioning some of the assumptions as you get older. Obviously, this didn't happen in high school, but then when I lived in Prague, I started questioning some of the assumptions that I'd just grown up on from Jewish day school. And um, a lot of them had to do with Israel. But I mean, both my parents gave me specific approaches to the world that I, um, I guess had an effect on me. I actually wanted to explore another direction that comes through in a lot of the writing, a lot of the liner notes in your book, which is the struggles that you had to get some of your comics published and certainly published in the way that you originally uh, intended. And, And I want to connect that to what I mentioned at the beginning, which was that I experienced reading your book like I was reading one of the biblical prophets. And you took that as a compliment, and and it is meant as one. And yet, it's not the only way that I meant it, right? I I also meant sort of functionally, right? What the product, what the prophets were doing was often to tell the king that you are doing wrong, that perhaps God and perhaps in our time, the people, the source of ultimate authority uh, believes that what you are doing is wrong and is... um, a violation of the deepest what this is about. And it seems that often I've heard this in different contexts about the Jewish press, that that often the Jewish press doesn't see that as its role, right? Doesn't see its role as to be critical or to do investigative reporting. And um, and I'm just curious if, if, uh, if you could reflect some from your experience on the role of the Jewish press, what it thinks it is what it ought to be. Uh, and, you know, because I, I often feel like if the Jewish press is not there to, you know, speak truth to power, who who is? You know, where where does that, where is that supposed to come from? Because it doesn't seem likely that in any society, the king is going to be doing the right thing. So, you know, and yet, it, it, it again, it seems that the sort of spirit of the American Jewish community is often to kind of give those in leadership positions a wide berth and to assume the best of them, as opposed to assume, as the biblical prophets did, that they are likely to become corrupted in different ways. Well, yeah, and we should extend the whole idea of corruption to people in all positions of power, including uh, Jewish press. Um, but when we say Jewish press, you know, it's a it's a broad term, and we should delineate because I mean, a lot of the Ju- the Jewish newspapers, which are suffering like all newspapers in, in the world, I guess, um, a lot of them are are either run by or um, affiliated with the federations, and so they are intrinsically unable to be independent. You know, the Forward, which I assume you're referring to, because that's like the only, um, or one of the only Jewish newspapers I've published in, prides itself on being an independent voice. They do like to see themselves as a communal watchdog, but um, with, with limits. They, they see themselves as both a watchdog and insider, and my book chronicles the rise and fall of the relationship. <laughs> um, but it's possible that the tone that I took and the take no prisoners attitude towards Jewish leaders was uh, off-putting. I don't want to be like everyone at the forward didn't like criticizing Abe Foxman. No, actually, everyone at the forward loved criticizing Abe Foxman. The editor-in-chief did not love criticizing Abe Foxman or criticizing any leader by name. I think what's so powerful about your work is that you seem to me to be one of the few that are out there publicly holding up a mirror to those in authority and, and sort of accusing them in various ways of violations. And at least for me, right, that doesn't 
have to be seen as something mean or something untoward, right? It actually should be normal that people in power, people in powerful positions should be willing to accept criticism, to be willing to have a mirror held up to them, telling them, you know, maybe you're off. And yet what we see and what your your comics detail, right, are things like, um, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu coming to Congress and saying he is here to represent all of Jewry when, in fact, the majority of American Jews supported the Iran deal. You know, we see Abe Foxman in that famous quote saying that leaders lead, which by which he meant we don't pay any attention to what the, quote, followers want, right? And somebody needs to call that out, right? Somebody needs to show, just to sort of remind people that uh, this is what they're saying actually makes no sense. And yet it seems like very few people are out there saying it. And I guess I'm wondering why you think nobody who has a who has the potential to have a megaphone is using the megaphone in that direction. I wish I knew, you know, I mean, I think people should be um, speaking up much more and they should be outraged. And we're in a cataclysmic period right now. And uh, we should be using all means at our disposal to holding power to account. Um, I think if not now is is a good organization that is basically um, you know out in the streets um, in the streets of Jewish communal institutions in the hallways I guess you could say saying you know you don't represent us and you don't represent Jewish values and I think that's important hopefully it, it will grow and inspire similar movements but also individuals to 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 speak out more. First up, I'm glad you mentioned If Not Now. Um, I mean, I've mentioned this in the past, so I'm super biased on this. I'm involved with If Not Now. But um, but I I think that you're right to, you're right to frame what they're doing as, I think, similar to what you're doing. I mean, maybe, I, maybe that's me saying that and not what you just said. I'm not sure. But like, I think it, it goes back to the sort of lowercase p prophetic role that Dan described. I think what If Not Now is seeking to do is is identify um, a set of things that Jewish organizations and people are saying and doing, and also state that is not that is not the way it needs to be, and turn that on its head, and ideally switch what is being said and done in. They also switch on its head by uh, incorporating specific Jewish customs and ritual in their yeah. protest which is uh, strategically genius. I mean, I don't know if it's, you know, because obviously I'm, I'm secular, so it, it doesn't always appeal to me, but it's very strategically genius because, um, the, it, again, with the whole diaspora boy thing, is the, the assumption is those who deviate from uh, communal uh, norms and communal uh, you know, politics are self-hating, attenuated, ignorant self-haters. Well, you already said self-haters. <laughs> They're self-hating self-haters. <laughs> so then they, uh, so when they're doing like a Seder outside of the Conference of Presidents headquarters, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you're not going to own our ritual. You're not going to own our liturgy, our prayer, and our tradition. It's not yours. You are the aberration. We are not. And that's actually the point of the book. You know, when you asked me earlier, the, the point is to flip it on its head and to stop perceiving ourselves through this second-class lens of Zionist ideologues and Jewish communal leaders. You know, we are actually the majority and we should start acting like it. But I know that among definitely ideologues and sometimes it's the um, sort of way to dismiss um, secular Jews is they basically say Bagel and Locks Judaism, Sein- basically this yeah. like 10 years ago they'd say Seinfeld Judaism. Now, I don't know, um, maybe they'd even say Bernie Sanders Judaism or something. And it's always done with a sort of disdain. But my whole idea is to reclaim that and to ignore these shitheads 
and these ignoramuses who don't even know what was going on 100 years ago. I'm interested in whether you want to sort of give some of your main major critique through some comic highlights. Like, for example, right, I mean, I I was particularly struck by the comic about the fish, you know, and just right to show the absurdity of the conversation by showing how if it were taking place in any other context, it would be, you know, outrageously idiotic, you know, and I mean, actually, the fish uh, comic seemed, you know, very analogous to that comic towards the end of the Republican uh, primary candidates talking about refugees, but, you know, that if they had said it about Jews, it would have been pilloried by every Jew in the world. They talk about anybody else. And at least there's a large number of Jews that are okay with it. And so, you know, that there was sort of that that theme of holding up the mirror and saying that if these conversations were happening in about any other topic, Jews would feel a different way about them. And, you know, the other sort of recurring theme that really struck me was the whole idea of like the sociologist for hire, uh, you know, the idea that um, so it seemed to me right that so many of the Jewish conversations are actually um, kind of bolstered by ideas and by data that is questionable and, and yet um, used to sort of uh, a, a, as a cudgel. I do say, and I mentioned in the book, that sociologists are our new theologians and we follow their guidance, but they're coming at these uh, issues with preconceived conclusions, you know, who respond to every news event within the Jewish world as proof that uh, intermarriage leads to attenuation of identity. But that's interesting that the disaster in the depths is the comic you cited, but the fish, I never thought of a parallel between that and the Republican debate one, um, but it's interesting how you said it's like out, if you just substitute different either word or different uh, image or environment, it, it, it reveals it as either absurd or unthinkable. What that hints back at and what you've mentioned a couple times is that some elements of what you bring to light and which people in general who are writing comics bring to light are hard to verbalize and that there's just something about, um, and this brings us back to where we started, there's something about this medium of comics um, and maybe of art more broadly, but I think particularly comics that helps us sort out the craziness that's going on around us. And so I guess I'm partially like thanking you for creating that in a Jewish context. There's not, you know, dozens of people out there doing this. It's as far as I know, a really, really, really small group. But also, is there anything that you'd want, you know, our listeners out there who may not have read your comics and who may not be regularly engaging with comics to think about and, you know, what gets you fired up in the morning to think about how you are somebody who creates art through the realm of comics to, you know, on some level shift the way people think or act? I am inspired largely by these 1950s horror and sci-fi comics. The most famous ones are the EC comics uh, by William Gaines, Harvey Kurtzman, uh, and company Will Elder, all these great titans who also did mad comics. The um, sort of shocking, lurid ones were their horror and um, also sci-fi titles. But I actually, um, I mean, I love those, but I, I really love the knockoffs because like with any um, money-making American institution, once one does well, all the copycats come. And so there are a lot of copycats and also rands. And it's, it's like B-noir, you know, like, you know, noir films. There was B-noir, which were done sort of like much more quickly on a studio lot and low budget. But because of the speed that they need to, to um, use to pursue all this, um, they became a little bit more like dreamscapes in some cases. And I love that. You have it sort of more visceral in some ways. And so these comics are similar too. I think of them as like B-comics, B-horror, B-noir or whatever, B-sci-fi. 
because they did not follow rules. And by the way, often, in fact, the majority of the comics were trite and obvious and not good. But if you, if you just keep reading them, you, you will find ones that just achieve a level of just transcendence and, um, or, or they just surprise you or they, or, they, or they really just become bizarre. There were no rules, you know? I mean, with the EC comics, there were rules. They were very rigid in their structure. And there were like, you know, these O. Henry kind of endings, you know, turnabouts and stuff. But with the also-rans, no, there, there was none of that because there were no rules. They could do whatever they wanted. And um, they, they just they create these, these other worlds in my brain, basically. And when I read them, I just get filled with these possibilities of narrative. And then if you're reading all these insane polemics and, um, you know, getting lost in these Zionist bubbles, and then you're also reading uh, about time travel or um, prehistoric craziness in these comics from the 50s, it just like sort of it bubbles up inside you and then you start writing scripts based on it. And it's a great way to close our, you know, unbound podcast by talking about not having rules. And I, I think that's pretty poetic. So thank you, Ellie Valley, so much for joining us today. It's been a fun conversation. Thanks for having me. It was fun to think about these things anew and uh, express some stuff. Thanks again to Ellie Valley for a fantastic conversation. We want to close out the episode in the same way we always do by encouraging you out there, our listeners, to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us financially with either a one-time gift or a monthly recurring donation. And you can do that at judaismunbound.com slash donate. If you want to purchase a copy of Ellie Valley's book, Diaspora Boy, we strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, remember, you can't do that on Amazon. So make sure to head either to our website, judaismunbound.com, check out the show notes for this episode where there's a link to buying the book, or you can head to ellievalley.com and do so on his site. So thanks again for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>